Is there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case for loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. Yes, that's right. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday at Dr. Batar. Welcome, my friend. You have your own theme song now. Yeah, just uh, the first time I ever heard that, and, and I have to say it's it's uh, very entertaining. Listen, I, you were already cool in my eyes. Now you're going to be totally cool with all the kids, too. <laughs> you know, I didn't miss uh, the, the one portion that I didn't quite understand the first time I heard it, which now I understand is a StarTech component with Dr. McCoy there. Yeah, so. d- bones. I'm, 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 I'm not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, I don't, did did you ever see the the reboot of the Star Trek? Uh, they they have a new guy play McCoy. He does a dead on McCoy. It's amazing. No, I actually haven't. But that's one of my favorite all time shows. I actually have very fond memories of sitting watching that show when my daughter was two years old in my lap. She's mm-hmm. nineteen now, and uh, so Star Trek's been one of the things you know that. I guess you could call me almost a Trekkie. I don't get dressed up and go to the Trekkie shows, but yeah. I'm, I'm the next thing down. I'll check with your wife just to make sure of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, the re- the reboot was fun, actually. You'd enjoy the new Star Trek movie. There's another one coming out. I don't know about it. But you know, we did some movie reviews. In fact, uh, last Friday, we did one on uh, John Carter, which got panned by the critics and bombed. But Liam Sheff and I did this, and he, he saw it. He says it's actually a great sci-fi flick. And he said the guy that did that, that wrote the story, it was based on Edgar Rice Burroughs, who did the Tarzan, originally wrote Tarzan. Uh, actually wrote the basis for the trans transporter of Star Trek. I had no idea. Very cool history there. Edgar Rice Burroughs is my all-time favorite author. I've read every one of the Tarzan books. I've got actually all the entire edition, all of them, three or four different editions of the same book, but in different you know prints. And there was a um, number of books he wrote on John Carter, who goes to Mars. So when I saw the preview for the movie, which I haven't seen yet, I wondered whether that was based upon the Edgar Rice Burrow character, but I yeah. wasn't sure. Well, and I didn't know it either. We talked about it on Friday. We did Sometimes we'll just do a little pop culture movie reviews on some things we think are worthwhile. And funny, I'm, I'm, it's, I'm not surprised that you like the Edgar Rice Burroughs. The, the fact that they, 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 they executed the marketing so poorly because I didn't know about it. John Carter, who, who's that? If they would have said Edgar Rice Burroughs, John Carter of Mars, or Princess of Mars, whatever, we would have known, and we'd have probably gone to see it. But now I'm going to have to go rent it. All right, but onward from the movies, Dr. Batar. we got a lot of health and healing stuff to do on Advanced Medicine Monday. I'll remind everybody of the upcoming event, Advanced Medicine Seminar in Phoenix, of course, today. We'll get to that. But it just reminded me of another uh, movie book, Robinson Crusoe on Mars, and they were taking these pills so they could breathe because the oxygen was so thin. And it reminds me of COPD, and we actually have a question about COPD. Is that something you're up for uh, discussing? Absolutely. Yeah, it's just a generic thing, but uh, this guy John Wallace wrote in, uh, what do you know about COPD and is there a way to cure it? I've heard that stem cell therapy can possibly cure it. Now, I'm not familiar with the specific stem cell therapy he's referring to, but I know I've had success with COPD, and I know you have, but what, do you, what is your perspective there? Well, COPD is a non-reversible condition. It stands for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, also known as reactive airway disease. 
the old term for it was emphysema, and it absolutely is reversible. We have literally hundreds of cases that we've reversed, and I can um, actually sh- refer you to one of the DVDs. I believe it's on the Know Your Options, the DVDs that you did the introduction for, Robert, on the cardiac one, um, on the heart disease one. And in there, there's an example of a patient who had end-stage emphysema, very interesting story. Uh, the patient came to me, had end-stage emphysema. We start treating him. In six months, he was no longer on oxygen. This guy came to me in two liters of oxygen, by the way. He'd had a couple of heart attacks. He was, uh, in, he had, was a diabetic. He'd had cancer before. In our profession, we refer to that type of a patient as a train wreck. Yeah. And uh, that is exactly what he was anyway his copd we we got it under control he didn't need his inhalers anymore he didn't need his oxygen anymore and then he got a case of pneumonia interestingly enough i guess it was about nine months after we'd been treating him and they took him to the hospital and they pulled his old medical records and they saw that he had a diagnosis of end stage end stage emphysema and um they did the pulmonary functions test on this gentleman and his pulmonary function tests actually performed very well. Yet when they pulled his old records and saw that they, he had a end-stage emphysema, the other doctor who wasn't taking care of the patient in the emergency room, who had pulled the records, who was going to be the admitting physician, comes to the patient's family and asks them to sign a DNR, do not resuscitate, meaning if the patient has respiratory failure, has a myocardial infarction, you know, crashes in the hospital, that the family has agreed beforehand not to resuscitate the patient and not to do the heroic measures because there's no point because the guy has, you know, end-stage disease. And uh, the family said, no, that's not what we want to do. And the doctor's trying to convince them that this is the only course of action. And uh, they said, um, no, it's not the only course of action. And and, um, the patient, you know, is doing very well, and he just has a case of pneumonia. Well, there was obviously a conflict between the family and the doctor, the admitting doctor. He ends up talking to the ER doctor, and he makes a comment regarding, you know, this end-stage emphysema patient. And the ER doctor says, no, this guy just has a pneumonia. He's his long, you know, pulmonary function tests were actually pretty good. And they get into an argument. The two doctors get into an argument, and then the internal medicine doctor that's admitting the patient sees the pulmonary functions test and then looks back on the chart from the previous hospitalization a year before where the diagnosis of end-stage emphysema was and cannot rectify the discrepancy between the two pulmonary function tests. And he says that there's no way that this pulmonary function test that was just done today in the ER and this pulmonary function test that was done in the hospital a year ago could be the same patient. And so he questions the validity of the new test. They redo the test. They come out. The test comes back actually better than the original ER test you know, by, by a few percentage points, and he's shocked, and he can't understand how this is possible because it is impossible to reverse chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, especially to that point. It was like 50% better than the previous test, and, uh, and it all started because the family was being pushed into signing a do-not-resuscitate order. Wow. Now, you say that the, the way you describe this is sort of like these people are confronted with uh, an altered reality that they can't make sense. And you said that you can't rectify or reconcile the two tests. You know, why couldn't they have thought maybe, maybe the first test was screwed up a year ago or was it 
it just there was no concept for them because they've been told and trained to believe that it's impossible to recover from COPD. Well, I think it's because you know there were there was a long-standing history of this patient coming back into the hospital re- with recurrent bronchitis. He was uh, he had standing orders for oxygen. He had you know a couple of uh, hundred prescriptions written for uh, inhalers and steroids over the last decade. So I mean, this is a long-standing history of this guy. So it wasn't like they just had one pulmonary function test, but that was the most recent one that they had compared to the one in the emergency room. But it went back over a decade of, you know, recurrent hospitalizations, you know, COPD, um, you know, end-stage emphysema, et cetera, et cetera. It just kind of went back 10, 15 years. So it was all of a sudden where there's this improvement. And when I say all of a sudden, it's relatively speaking, it was over a nine-month period. But, um, you know, the treatment that we do with for uh, – it's, it's actually the same treatment that we do for reactive airway disease, for asthma, for emphysema, for COPD, sure. even for uh, lung cancer. Patients with cancer, actually, I do it because it improves oxygenation and ventilation and respiratory reserve so dramatically. And, of course, as you know, that cancer is an obligate um, anaerobic metabolizer. It hates oxygen. It needs an oxygen-free environment to, to thrive. And in the presence of oxygen, it doesn't do very well. So one of my treatments that I do with all my cancer patients, or what, well, vast majority of my cancer patients, I should say, um, I will do this procedure. And normally within 30 to 60 seconds, you see a clinical improvement where the patient can breathe better. The oxygen saturation on pulse oximeter increases anywhere from 2 to 10%. Uh, so if they're like pulsing at, uh, you know, 88% room air, they'll be at 96%, 97% on room air. If they're at 95 96%, they usually get up to 99%, 100% on room air. And um, their respiratory reserve is markedly improved. And this is like within five minutes. We will actually measure the respiratory reserve. What we do is we do baseline before the treatment. We have them hold their breath, see how long they can hold their breath. And then after treatment, five minutes later, we have them repeat the test. And we've had people go up, you know, between between fifty percent to three hundred percent increase in respiratory reserve. Well, what kind of uh, uh, let's say uh, implementation is involved? I mean, can people do this at home alone, or is this something that they need to come see you or doctors that you've trained, or is this widely available and just not spoken of anywhere in the media? Well, it was a treatment that I was taught by a doctor, Filbert, who I'm not sure is alive anymore. He was in his 80s when I met him in the late 90s. So this was, let's see, I've been doing the procedure for at least 14 years. So I guess it was in 1998 or 1997 I learned it. And Dr. Filbert was in his 80s at that time. It is published in the Journal of the, see, the American Journal of Family Practice. It's a study that was published there. It is a procedure that I think every single doctor should know. Unfortunately, there's less than 100 doctors that I know of in the country that do it, and over 65 of them I trained how to do it. The treatment is extremely effective. I have had doctors tell me, oh, yeah, I learned how to do it. It just doesn't work. Huh. looked at them point blank and told them that the treatment works 100% of the time. If you don't know how to do it the right way, that's a different story. Well, what, if, kind, what kind of things can go wrong in, the, in those docs that say it doesn't work? I mean, is it a minor tweak that they missed, or is it a major issue that they just kind of over, overlooked? Well, it's like anything else, Robert. It's a procedure, so there's a skill involved. Um, it's a two-and-a-half-inch needle that's introduced into the infraspinatus muscle with a combination of a long-acting analgesic like Marcaine or Lidocaine, 
or procaine. It has um, some um, saline in there, and it's a couple of different components in there. We, we actually put in Tramiel, which is a homeopathic injectable anti-inflammatory. Nice. Yeah. And so there's a couple of different comp- constituents. Over the years, we've kind of tweaked the formula ourselves. But really, believe it or not, it's not as important as what you're putting in as, as is where you're injecting it. And essentially what it does is, um, since we don't have the luxury of actually showing an illustration of how this works, you can think of the rib cage as a double door. So as a, as a person inspires, those double doors open up and allow more oxygen in. And as they mm-hmm. expire, as they breathe out, those double doors close. And the hinges on that door, you can think of it as the infraspinatus muscle. And essentially what happens is those hinges, they get rusted, or in the case of the human body, those muscles, the infraspinatus muscle, goes into a chronic contracture, so it shortens. And when it shortens, it actually locks those doors out. So people think that when a person can't breathe, it's because they can't open up their lungs, where in fact, that's not the reason. It's that they can't close the lungs so they're locked out in inspiration they can't exhale wow. this is it, really this is stunning dr Bittar. i'm amazed that we haven't covered this at this at this depth because it's a, it, you're right i i could see how docs could could not get this right it's a very complex thing even well for anybody to not if you just don't nail it just right and i, I like the fact that you're adding the tromiel into it as well this is absolutely fascinating so you've had again personal experience and you've seen this actually work Oh, man, I do it. I, I do it probably five times a week in my um, practice. With I mean, all my cancer patients get it. My brother, I do this on my brother and my dad. I've done it on literally hundreds and hundreds of patients, if not thousands. I've actually even had a medical board undercover investigator that was a uh, retired doctor that came to me and had, had shortness of breath, and I did this procedure on him. And after I walked back in a couple minutes later to see how he was feeling, he looked at me and he said, I-, I can't believe what I just experienced. And he said, I have to tell you the truth. You know, I've been sent here to as an undercover investigator. And mm-hmm. he said, I'm just, uh, he-, he apologized to me and said that he didn't know what I did and how I did it. But he said this was remarkable in his 25 years of having asthma. He's never felt that. Right. Sick. I do, I do remember you mentioning this guy, but I didn't remember the full context of, of the COPD treatment. So very cool. Those of you out there know anybody with this uh, issue, uh, definitely, you want to come on down or send somebody down to Phoenix um, in January. We'll talk about that at Advanced Medicine Seminars. You'll probably meet some doctors that Dr. Batar has also trained, and maybe you can access that if you have one or would like to find one in your area. We've got to take a break. We've gone a little long in the opening segment, but it's been great already, and we're going to even get better. There's a stage 4 cancer patient that I was talking to Dr. Batar about. That, that's an extraordinary story. So we've got some more healing stories coming up. If you ever miss... The Robert Scott Bell Show Special Edition, Monday edition with Dr. Batar. He co-hosts every Monday, Advanced Medicine Monday. There's MedicalRewind.com. You can check it out there. And we'll be right back. Great heavens. What kind of radio show is this? The Robert Scott Bell Show. on bureaucrats and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom. Here's Robert. Just to be on the safe side, Dr. Batar, on that COPD issue as we're coming back here in the next, next segment, uh, was there any kind of thing we might have went too quickly on as far as how to uh, go about or things that people should know? Well, I think that it is important to 
kind of explain how the what the mechanism is. And essentially, as I was explaining about the rusted hinge yes. on the door, um, not being able to open up. So the lungs essentially are locked in an open state, in a state of inspiration. It can't, the person can't exhale anymore. So when a person has asthma or COPD, it's not that they can't breathe in, it's that they can't breathe out anymore. Mm. So they're locked out in inspiration. And think of it as the hinges are rusted with the door wide open. So what we do is we go in there and we essentially oil the hinge or we relax the muscle so that the muscle lengthens and now the door can close. And if it can close, the person can start ventilating again. And that's the reason that we get a response normally between anywhere within 30 seconds to 60 seconds. It's very rare for a patient to go more than a minute and a half before they feel a sensation. And I'm not exaggerating. It's actually documented in our procedure notes how rapidly this occurs. This is stunning because it reminds me of a lot of other medical interpretations of ailments or or illnesses or diagnoses. Like, for instance, we've talked about gastrointestinal or, or stomach. Let's talk about GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, the the assessment by and large, uh, we call it consensus medicine. They say, well, the problem is you've got too much stomach acid. That's why the danger is when the opposite is true. And it's like you're telling me about the hinges. People are saying you can't breathe in, but you're just saying now you can't breathe out. So they goofed on that one, too. Well, actually, look at our method that's utilized in medicine, Robert. Mm -hmm. Reflux is a perfect example uh, as you said, the problem is they need more acid. We tend to, in medicine, do the opposite of what we need to do. Perfect <laughs> example, a gallbladder is no longer working. They get cholecystitis, uh, infection of the, or inflammation of the gallbladder. So you do a HIDA scan, you see that the gallbladder's functioning is reduced by 80%. It's down to a 20% functioning uh, and what do we do? We go ahead and remove the gallbladder. The solution should remove the gallbladder. So now you go down from 20% down to 0%. Instead of saying, let's increase it right. to 40%, or 40%, we just remove it and now take it all the way down to zero. Same thing, you know, it's like radiation in, in, um, or chemotherapy uh, in patients with cancer because you know that you're not supposed to get exposure to radiation. We know that. Why? Because D, uh, radiation will cause DNA addicts to form, cause mutation of the cells. So that's the reason that everybody should abstain from radiation. That's why you have the universal triangular radiation danger sign or you have the old-time skull and crossbones that used to be on the x-ray doors of hospitals. And so why was that sign there? It was to warn people that this is radiation, it's dangerous, stay away from it. However, now, in fact, you can even ask a patient, why is it that radiation is dangerous? Because it suppresses your immune system. Now you get cancer, what do we do? We stick you into the same place that you should abstain from if you're healthy in order to prevent yourself from getting cancer, but now you have cancer, let's put you into that same scenario and exacerbate the very situation that we're trying to prevent people from having exposure to radiation from. Yeah, I, I know it's bizarre, but this this highlights it in another way, in a unique way, I think, on the COPD issue, and I'm so glad uh, we had that question come in and you were able to answer it in, in this way. Now, if, if we move on to the cancer issue, uh, the, I, you know, let's not even assume that, that the lay audience understands stage one, two, three, four, or 10, you know, whatever stages they have that they throw out there in cancer. Because when we were going to talk about the stage four, let's tell everybody what that really means in terms of diagnosis. Well, this is another excellent point, Robert. I just had a patient a couple months ago that was very, very upset because when they called, um, they said that they had, they were told that their cancer was um, not stage four, because they knew that stage four was considered, quote, to be terminal. 
And essentially stage four is a late stage of cancer, which means that it's not spread to other organs. And uh, the patient had specifically asked, the doctors had specifically said that, no, this is not stage four, yet the CAT scan report from three months earlier clearly showed that the cancer had spread to the liver and to the lungs. It was primary, was breast. And so the patients got very upset with me. And I said, look, I'm just reading. This is the first time I've ever talked to him on the phone. Um, you know, it's an initial phone consult. And I said, well, you're telling me that you have one daughter said it was stage two and the son said, no, it may be stage three. But they were, you know, arguing about it. And so I think this question you bring up is a, a very valid point that people need to know what the difference is. And as I'm explaining to them, I said, look, I'm not, I'm not making any words up here. I'm not making up anything. I'm just reading the CAT scan. The CAT scan says that the spread to the liver and spread to the lungs and if it's spread to the liver and spread to the lungs, that's stage four. By definition, the way this works is stage one is considered to be cancer localized to the actual organ where it's found. Stage two is considered when it has involved the capsule. It, it's, it started to invade into the outer margins of that organ. You could you could say um, if it's, say, the prostate, it's gone through the through the capsule, hasn't penetrated through the capsule, but it's involved the capsule. Stage three would be that it's already extended out, but it hasn't spread into other organ systems. And stage four would be where it shows up in other organ systems. Mm -hmm. And types of cancers have different types of scoring. For example, there's a Gleason score that's looked at for prostate cancer. Um, There's certain grades of cancer, like when you're looking at astrocytoma or glioblastoma, but essentially stage four, stage one, stage three, stage three, and stage four, those are four stages of all cancers and essentially defines the extent of the disease. So if you have stage four, that means that the cancer has now spread from the primary site into other organs and has uh, there's manifestation of that cancer in those various organs. And if it's just localized to the original organ, it's considered stage one. Gotcha. Stage three are intermediate between. Beautiful. That's much clearer for everybody. I appreciate that. Now, going to the story of a recent uh, interaction you said with a patient that came in with stage four is pretty stunning. Yeah, generally speaking, when a patient comes in with stage four cancer, um, if they've had stage four cancer or which again means cancer is spread to more than one site, or they've had radiation and or chemotherapy, they will require more than one round of treatment. One round of treatment in my clinic is four weeks, and um, they, you, they will require more than one round of treatment if they've had either stage four or they've had a history of chemo radiation, or of course both, then it's going to necessitate that second round or third round of treatment. And... Uh, it's interesting right now that I've got a patient in my clinic that I'm treating and whose son, the, the, the patient himself, has a uh, squamous cell carcinoma that's metastasized to his, uh, the primary was actually on his ear and it's now metastasized to his skeletal system and to his, uh, to his uh, lungs. And uh, so we're treating him, but his son, who's in his early 30s, is a patient of mine from three years ago that I treated with uh, melanoma who had what uh, was considered to be uh, a late-stage melanoma. In fact, we talked. He wrote a question into the show probably about a year ago. His name was Chris. So anyway, it's, it's interesting because I'm treating the, the father of the son who I treated a couple of years ago. And, you know, it's usually the other way around. You first treat the son, father and then yes, the father. Yes, yes. Kind of an interesting uh, turn, but in this particular scenario, Chris was there with his father, and I walk by to see Chris's dad, and I see one of my other patients who this story is really about, 
And the minister, originally Jamaican, who came to my clinic a year ago, in fact, exactly a year ago, with stage four adenocarcinoma of the lungs with the metastasis to the lymphatic system and to his liver. And so we took him through the treatment, and he responded well. And as usual, four weeks after the four-week treatment, he went home. And it's usually between two and four weeks they go home. And they stay home, and then they come back, and we reassess them based upon another cancer panel, which is essentially looking at the lymphocyte subpopulation and apoptosis scores to see how well he responded to the treatment. Yes. Came back for the follow-up. He wasn't able to come back in four weeks. It took him a couple of weeks longer. It took him about five and a half weeks before he was able to come back. But we, he comes back. We do his assessment, and we see that his response to treatment, like I have a target mm-hmm. that I want the person to hit. And most of the time, most people when they come back, they're better, they're significantly better, but they don't hit that target. Well, he had exceeded that target. And so I told him, I said, look, I know you're here for the next four weeks of treatment, and you know you, you need it because you're obviously stage four patient. And these rules aren't just arbitrary rules, Robert. It's you know, based upon my... 21 years of being a doctor and 16 years of practicing this type of medicine. So those rules I've established based upon what my experience has been. Yes. I knew he had to come back and I told him he had to come back. But because he responded so well to the treatment and he was still responding, I said, go home. We don't need to do the treatment right now. Let's wait another month. So he goes home, comes back a month later. We reassess him again. And he's continuing on that same streak of exceeding his milestones. So I told him, okay, let's do this. Go back. And, uh, you know, in a month, month and a half, let's have a phone consult and we'll do the test again. Let's see. There's no reason for you to fly back. He, he does. He does do, his, do you have a, an assessment now looking back at this, why someone in that situation could so far supersede your expectations based on all of your clinical observations prior? Well, you know, this, this is interesting because, one, obviously our treatments are constantly evolving and we're getting better and better and we're finding new tools to add to our arsenal and all these things are happening. But remember, we've also talked for whatever year, this year, 2012, yes. people are getting sick are getting sicker faster. And the people that are recovering are recovering faster and, and to a greater extent. And I'm seeing this happen more and more. And so there must be something to do with the alignment of the planets or something. Who knows what it is? But mm-hmm. I just know that this has been the first stage four cancer patient that I've had that I didn't need to go right into the round two of treatment. So. And I'm, I'm, I've actually got evidence right now that I'm going to have a couple more patients that are right now under treatment that are doing so well that preliminary evidence suggests that they won't need a second round or at least it'll be delayed. But that's still, you know, for me, when you're dealing with a stage four thing, that's considered terminal. That's considered that, you know, it's inevitable. Nothing has worked and they're going to essentially expire and transition. They're, they're going to die. And so I'm still a little guarded by making this uh, type of comment. Sure, sure. Usually I will insist on the second round of treatment just to ensure that it's not just a battle that we won, but we've won the war. And um, all my patients that are, you know, three, four, five, eight, nine years out of their cancer have all gone through two rounds or more. For instance, Chris, this young patient with the melanoma that I told you about, he went through three rounds. So, you know, it's, it's a little hard to believe that a person would respond after just one round. So I told this guy, this, this minister, that, look, it's, it doesn't mean that you're not going to need that second round, but I think that we can put it off till the end of the year. Mm. You know, comes around June, July, August. In August, I ask my staff to contact him. They call, leave a message in, in August and September, no response. So we figured, you know, no response is probably a good thing, but, you know, he hasn't responded. Then in November, last month, uh, my staff tells me that there's an urgent 
request by this patient, Walter, who calls, who's, who's actually on the schedule, which I didn't know he was on the schedule, and I had to reschedule the patient. But long story, I find out that it's Walter. They said, no, no, he really wants to talk to you. So I'm thinking something to do with his cancer. And they said, no, it's to do with gout. Yeah. Oh, really? Gout. Oh, yeah. all right. This is in, this is getting even more interesting. All right, stand by. We got to take a break here. Doctor Batar's got a good one, and uh, I think this will uh, help us to understand. Plus, I loved what you were talking about the, the the experience of the quickening, so to speak, whether it be into illness or whether it be into recovery. There's some things we can talk about here. So, stand by. Lots more healing to go on the Robert Scott Bell Show with Doctor Rasha Batar. It is Advanced Medicine Monday. Stand by. The Robert Scott Bell the Robert Show. Scott Bell Show. Taking on bureaucrats and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom. Here's Robert. If you enjoy Advanced Medicine Monday as much as I do, you'll want to make plans to come see Dr. Batar. He's going to be there. Phoenix, Arizona, January 25th and 26th. Doctors, 25th and 26th. All of the lay audience, come on down on the 26th. That's Saturday. And when we talk doctors, just to reiterate for all our new listeners, this is all health care providers. You don't have to be a medical doctor or a DO. You can be a DC. You can be a naturopath. You can be any kind of holistic support, and you will get it. And you will add a lot, contribute a lot, and get a lot from it. So check it out, advancedmedicineseminars.com. Now, the discussion continues, Dr. Batar. You hit a fascinating twist here. I'm thinking, all right, we got a stage four guy that's responding really fast, and now suddenly he's calling you and saying, hey, doc, I got gout. Now, I know this is what it's telling me, and I'll get to that, but I want to hear what, what's, what's transpiring here. Well, the thing was, this is, guys, now a year since we did this treatment. We did this treatment in December, January timeframe, so of 2011, beginning 2012. So now when he calls back, and it's about at the end of the year now. This had just happened last week, two weeks ago. So now it's it's coming back to the end of the year, and that's what I was thinking. That's why I had my staff contact and see how he's doing because I figured he's going to need another round of treatment, even though there may be no cancer there, just to keep it at, at stay. You don't wait for the flashing light on the engine to come on. This is called preventive maintenance to make sure that nothing's going to happen. So he calls me, and he's telling me about his gout, and he had, he had been on high blood pressure medication before he came to us. His blood pressure had become normal, so he he had been one of his doctors that adjusted some of his medication. Long story short, that changed him to a different type of diuretic. He's now starting to have gout. He's ha- got all these problems. He goes to see his family doctor, who's, who apparently knew that he had cancer. And the family doctor, knowing that he had cancer, prescribes a steroid for the patient. And after he's on the steroid for about seven to ten days, he develops a cough and, and is, he's got the chest tightness. And he just didn't feel right. He stops the diuretic. He stops the steroid. And suddenly his blood pressure normalizes and his gout starts to disappear. But now he's got this cough. And that's why he called me. And, uh, you know, I told him to get mm. get back in the office. He comes back in the office. We uh, hit him with a couple of treatments for three, four days. Yeah. Uh, get a couple of cancer panels to see the you know how his immune system is responding. And we haven't gotten the results back, but apparently he got back home. And he, by the way, I did the same procedure, the one that we just talked about previously, the IRR injections for his for the lungs. For his, and immediately his cough resolved. He had no more problem with cough. He was there for another two days, no problem with cough. But apparently when he got back to his home, within a couple of days of flying back home, the cough returned. He didn't feel so good. He started swelling up. They went to the hospital. They got a scan, and it's, there apparently is a recurrence of the cancer now which was what my biggest fear was that, you know, when you take a person that's got cancer, the whole issue is that their immune system is suppressed. You cannot have cancer 
and have an intact immune system. If you have an intact immune system, it is impossible to get cancer. So by definition, if you have cancer, that means you have a damaged immune system. And what we've done, we've just worked on repairing his immune system, and then in a single blow, they come in, they put him on a steroid, which basically suppresses the entire immune system. Mm. And um, so, you know, it's a, it's a horror story, but it kind of shows that you must be vigilant at all times and can't trust other people uh, with the responsibility of your own health care. You must take responsibility and understand where the problem lies and how uh, and what you must do in order to prevent that from becoming an uh, issue that you're going to have to deal with. In other words, this gentleman, because he allowed somebody to put him on steroid that further suppresses his immune system, um, may have that single-handedly may have been the reason for the recurrence of his of his cancer. I, I would say that's a huge uh, clue. Let's call it a clue that you and I would see. Unfortunately, the, this other doc, this old doc that he was with seeing, uh, didn't. Now, I want to bring up the gout thing, and we talked a little bit off the air about this. It's so fascinating because, as I learned in, in the homeopathic realm, you know, to address the difference or distinction between an acute disease and a chronic disease, gout was always described to me as someone who was basically okay, and you had a, an attack, right? It was an acute, we call it a sthenic or a strong reaction in somebody that was otherwise in pretty good health. So if this guy was stage four and the things you did were accelerating his health beyond health, healing faster than you'd ever seen typically, and he showed gout, that tells me that this guy really was on a strong track and this doctor th- just screwed it up for him. Yeah, exactly, because you're right. If you don't have the, if the body doesn't have the ability or the capability of responding uh, gout is a gout is a inflammatory cascade. It's a it's a response that the system must be um, functioning in order for the gout to occur. Is what you were saying essentially? Because a person mm-hmm. with a chronic, uh, long time debilitating type disease isn't going to have. Yes, gout. exactly, and, and and that's really important. I, I when I learned that initially from my mentor in homeopathic medicine, I just thought that was common knowledge. But you realize that the distinction, even homeopaths often don't make the distinction between a, a true acute phase uh, issue and a chronic and, and sort of they'll put a, a square peg round hole kind of context because there are various forms of, of musculoskeletal inflammation that may fall in the arthritic family. But they are distinct and different when you're in a chronic state versus an acute state. Absolutely. And this is the case of throwing the baby out with the bathwater because in essence, we were dealing with a problem that really wasn't a significant problem. And by trying to address that insignificant problem, not only did they inappropriately address that insignificant problem, but they made that insignificant problem into a very significant and potentially life-threatening problem. In other words, they exacerbated it into a mm-hmm. situation they didn't need to do so. Well, this again falls under the term, and we haven't used it this, this uh, time through, but iatrogenic. I mean, the doctor really caused the problem here or exactly. made it worse. Exactly. This is this is by definition an iatrogenic issue. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. So at this point, uh, what can you say about uh, can we help somebody like this recover that's been assaulted? I mean, it's not like we're saying the doctor did it on purpose, but it's just a shame that uh, they really don't take the time to consult or really step back and say, hey, what? where has this been? Where is it going? And maybe take a different direction. Yeah, it's really almost... Um like the person isn't paying attention. And I asked the patient this. I said, well, did he know that you have cancer? And he says, yes. And I said, are you sure? And he said, yeah, of course. He's been my family doctor for a couple of years. 
And I said, and he still put you in steroids? And the patient now, by this time, had already figured this out himself. Yes. His daughter had uh, gone on the internet, and they were like, you know, they were just appalled that this doctor had put them on a steroid. But yet, many doctors will put patients with cancer on steroids, not understanding wow. that this is a fundamental um, breach of any understanding of how the body works. I mean, you cannot suppress or you cannot further suppress an immune system that is already suppressed and yes. hope that you can still allow that person to survive. Because cancer, when you suppress an immune system, when, when you have a, a suppressed immune system and you further suppress it with a drug, all you're doing, it's kind of like having a, a, a bug on the ground and you've smacked that bug. And now mm. what you've done is after you smack that bug, you've taken a rock and you've thrown it on top of that you know, yes. ant, like thinking that it's going to even, it just does, it defies logic. It, it, it's, right. it's the most asinine thing to do to a person that has cancer. Well, well said. And it's also very hard on the liver. And we know in gout, the gout, the liver is, is having a hell of a time processing uric acid, for instance. And, and so you've really compounded the problem. No question about it. You know exactly what happened here. And this, I'm going to do a shameless plug for the nine steps to keep the doctor away, because this is, uh, this is the lesson that I want everybody to hear. If you have a doctor that you like, you've worked with somebody, guy says, yeah, he's been my family doctor for however long. Bring him the nine steps to keep the doctor away so that this doesn't happen to you. You know, it's funny that this patient told me there was another doctor in the hospital when he went there, and he really, really liked this doctor. The guy, the guy was, as the patient said, holistically oriented. He told me, he said, Dr. Patar, he reminded me of you. He, I, I just really, really liked him. He felt like he, he was the right doctor, and I asked him to be my doctor, and he said he couldn't because he only worked in the hospital. He said that he wasn't allowed to have patients because he was a hospitalist, so he works for the hospital, mm-hmm. and uh, so he wasn't able to take the patient, but he was very cognizant of wanting the patient to figure out a way and wanted to help the patient figure out a way to deal with his gut without messing around with any medication. Right. And yet family practice doctor put him on a steroid, you know, had the diuretic. The patient actually got rid of his gut symptoms himself by getting rid of the diuretic that he was on, mm-hmm. which obviously the diuretic was causing, you know, the diuretics, depending on the type of diuretics, they'll throw off your sodium, potassium, they'll throw off all the electrolytes that you're excreting. So there's... Um, imbalances in the electrolytes, which will then help to contribute to the uh, cascade that ends up causing the uh, renal calculi in... Sure, yeah. We talk uh, about converting uric acid to the salt of the acid, like sodium urate, into the urine, and you see that you start messing with that balance. It's going to be a difficult time for your body to do what it's designed by God to do. Right. This is where you start getting gallbladder stones. This is where you get Mm -hmm. kidney stones. This is where you get the gout issues. You you start getting all these imbalances that are really nothing more than manifestations of abnormal electrolyte uh, electrolyte elimination. Wow. So, you know, besides the fact that this doctor unfortunately uh, put the patient on the wrong medication, um, he also didn't do anything proactive to make sure the patient's bigger issue, which was a cancer, yes. that, that, you know, it was almost done isolated. It was almost like saying, yeah, you know, you've got this big picture, but, you know, I really don't care about it. It's, it's like having a dry field with no water and saying, you know, it doesn't matter if you set this fire. It, it's not. It's not a big deal. And oh. just set the whole, you know, that's the whole field on fire by just trying to deal with a small little issue, but cause this huge monstrosity right. of damage. And so, I mean, I basically didn't even have to say much to the patient because the patient was already pretty disgusted they himself. Yeah. And, you know, I just got to make sure that I, I really, really pay attention to what's going on with my own health. 
And I told him, I said, please, whatever you do, you know, at this point, do not go back to that doctor. Go to the doctor that's in the hospitalist or go to somebody else. And he said, no, no, I've already made my decision. My wife has told me that I was an idiot and I should have just kept staying with you. And he says, I'm back here and whatever right. it takes. Well, it's a hard lesson learned, but uh, bless him if he's if he's got it. And it, it certainly helped all of us to to be paying more attention to these issues so that it doesn't happen to anybody else. Stand by. We've got a we've got a short segment to close off today's uh, Advanced Medicine Monday and Medical Rewind with Dr. Rashid Bittar after this. You're listening to the Robert Scott Bell Show. In the health world through the power of radio. It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. You know, Dr. Batar, last segment I, I mentioned that I wanted people to bring your book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away, to their doctor. It reminds me of something that you have done and said, and I agree with this completely. If you want to know if a sheriff is a good guy or not, bring him Richard Mack's book. Kind of in a similar way in the in the law enforcement realm, what Richard Mack Richard Mack's book does, what your your book does in the medical world. Well, yeah, Robert, and the, the whole point is that, you know, I, I don't want people necessarily thinking that, you know, I've got the, all the answers. Obviously, that we're always searching for the right answers, but it com- brings home the point that you and I have discussed before on the show and we've discussed off the air mm-hmm. in private, and that is that it's so important for the individual when they meet a physician that they resonate with them. And, you know, I'm not going to resonate with every person that I meet and every person's not going to resonate with me. But the ones that do, that's where the doctor-patient relationship can really end up having a great benefit for mm-hmm. the patient as well as for me because it helps me to grow. It helps me to learn. And what I want the people that are listening to this right now to understand that it is important for them to listen to their gut instinct when they meet their doctor. It's a relationship that you're entering into. And I have had so many people tell me that, oh, well, you know, I don't want to upset my doctor. I don't want to do this with my doctor or, or you know, I just don't trust my doctor, but I, I have to take this medicine because history prescribed to me. No, you don't have to take that medicine. No, you don't have to listen to that doctor. That doctor does not own you. If you don't feel comfortable with the decision your doctor's made, then find a doctor that you are comfortable with. That is your prerogative. That is your right. In fact, that is your obligation if you want to maintain good health. Hmm. Well said. Absolutely well said. And, you know, resonance is also something we talk about in homeopathic medicine, any kind of energy healing or the things that are palpable when you meet somebody. And sometimes you'll have the hairs go up like, you know, ooh, or you get this warm embrace kind of feeling that's energetic. All of these things play much more important roles than we were given or are given credence in a Western reductionist mindset. You're absolutely right. It's something that we all need to be paying more attention to because it is where everything starts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, we only have a couple of minutes left here, but I want to go back to something you said earlier today. And that was about the people that are getting sicker, they're getting sicker faster or quicker. People that are getting well, if they're doing the right thing, they're getting well even faster as well. I, you know, I, I find this fascinating that you've been observing this because we can talk in terms of predictions, but we're seeing how the predictions are playing out in reality, that we are in a transformational time. As we said, the world is not going to end in 11 days from now on December 21st. It's going to keep going on, but the transformation, the energy that's happening, that is very real, and we're seeing it in real life. Well, Robert, um, I completely agree with you. I have been noticing even looking at the night sky, the day sky, the sky looks even more beautiful than it normally does. The moon, it's just really, really uh, fascinating. And when you look at the uh, predictions of 
people like Nostradamus, whether people believe in Nostradamus or not, his predictions have been very, very interesting to say the least. One of his predictions that I heard about in the History Channel about a year and a half ago was that the city of New York and, and that area, uh, um, that would be under water. And sure enough, that occurred with uh, Hurricane Sandy. So it's very interesting what the, some of these historical predictions were and what they meant. And even Nostradamus said that it was up to man to decide what his future would be and that this would be the critical phase that we're coming into. And I can tell you, from my perspective, there are so many more people that are enlightened and aware that I believe that we have, as a global society, made the right decision. If, if uh, H1N1 was any indication how the world population uh, absolutely refused to believe the governments that uh, throughout the world of what they were promoting with the H1N1, yeah. that is very indicative of the awareness that we are reaching as, as a society, global society. Yeah, you know, we try to look for these positive signs, like you know, 60% of the American population have not gotten a flu shot this year. That's, hey, that's a majority. That's good. Uh, you know, we still know that there's a lot of ailments. There's a lot of people crying out in pain and anguish. And, of course, there'll be a lot more because of the economic collapse, which we didn't get into today. But maybe we can talk more about it next week because that's also a real part of when we talk about advanced medicine, we apply it to all areas of life. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Dr. Batar, I, I'm going to have to get, re-listen to today's uh, show because some of the stuff you went into is such, such great detail. And I encourage everybody, if you don't already do that, if you're not taking notes, go back, re-listen. If you don't listen to them here, you can also get them through Natural News Radio or right at medicalrewind.com. And I've got links up in the show notes, as I always do, to the nine steps to keep the doctor away. If you're a new listener, this is a guidebook, and it is quite transformative for all lay, the lay audience as well as the medical doctor audience that really embrace is it and dr batar man great great job as always with advanced medicine monday today robert i just want to say that we've got a new book that hopefully will be coming out in a couple months called suppression the working title right now suppression of a medical miracle and uh, i'm very excited about it it's been a long-term uh project and it's been a long time coming so i'm excited about that coming and i'll let you know more about that oh i can't wait to debut it right here on the robert scott bell show advanced medicine monday and thank you dr batar thank you to everybody out there we'll be back tomorrow but in the meantime remember the power to heal is yours We'll be right back. 